You're now listening to The Sound of Sanity. This sound will continue for the duration of the program. Hello, welcome to Sound of Sanity. I'm Nathan. I'm your humble and obedient host. We've got Jake, the pastor who's a master of sanity, right there in hey. his house. Hey, Jake. What's up? I'm going to need you to introduce the third guy. It's Ben. Hey, Ben. Hey, Ben. You're the preacher who's the teacher of sanity, aren't I you? I am. Yeah. Well, it's true. We've got the pastor. We've got the preacher. We've got the host. That's what we need. And you're not going to want to listen to this episode, folks, without listening to last week's episode, which was part one of a series on IVF and infertility treatments and things like that. And you can go and listen to that for all the context you're going to need for this episode. All right, guys, last week's episode was called The Infertility Industry, and today we're continuing that discussion. You'll remember that last time we talked about infertility in general, and we started to get into lots of facts and figures about sperm and egg donation, some of the treatments. And we left on a bit of a cliffhanger last week as we were specifically talking about IVF. Now, listener, listener, it's right there in your name. You listen. You listened last week, so you remember what IVF stands for, right? In vitro fertilization, which literally means fertilization in a glass, in a test tube, in a Petri dish. And it's a type of, you'll remember, ART or ART, which means what, Ben? ART means assisted reproductive technology. And we won't be talking much about other kinds of ART besides IVF, because almost all ART that's done is IVF. You can think of the other forms of ART as spinoffs of IVF. Ben, that is a lot of acronyms, and I'd like to take this moment to thank you for using them. Anytime, Nathan, T-T-Y-L-R-O-F-L. L-O-L. So, let's talk about the history of IVF and the details of the process. Jake, why don't you start us off as we go into a segment called The History of IVF. Sure, I... Wait, let's play the history of IVF music. Okay, but... Okay, dearest listener, welcome to The History of IVF. Jake, why don't you start us off? Yeah, why don't I? IVF was developed by Dr. Robert Edwards in the mid-20th century. The first baby born through IVF was Louise Brown in 1978. By contrast, artificial insemination has been around way longer. The first known case was in 1790, according to Wikipedia, at least. Hey, let me totally derail us, and let's just go down that rabbit trail, because, hey, we didn't talk about its history last time. Um, first known case of artificial insemination through donor sperm was in 1884 by a doctor named William Pancoast who was trying to help get a couple pregnant. And it's very telling that this first instance of using, you know, sperm from someone who was not the husband was particularly terrible. An article in The Atlantic describes how Pancoast didn't tell the woman or her husband what he was about to do. And here's what he did. Quote, In front of six medical students, Pancoast knocked out his patient using chloroform, inseminated her with a rubber syringe, and then packed her cervix with gauze. The source of the semen was one of the medical students in the room, determined to be the most attractive of the bunch, end quote. All right, so she got pregnant and had the baby, and for about 25 years thought it had been born using her husband's sperm. That is absolutely disgusting. I bet even the Atlantic was disgusted. Uh, they were. Which the Atlantic getting disgusted at sex stuff is like Jack the Ripper getting disgusted at a true crime podcast. Great, Great metaphor, Nathan! <laughs> Thanks, guys. But this is not the history of artificial insemination. This is the history of IVF. So, coming out of that rabbit trail and back to the history of IVF, Jake? 
Okay, back to Robert Edwards, the doctor who developed IVF in the mid-20th century. Edwards was born in 1925 in Yorkshire, England. He studied biology as an undergrad and then animal genetics and embryology as a graduate student. In his early research, he did genetic engineering and attempted in vitro fertilization with mice. During the 60s, he did research work funded by the Ford Foundation, continuing to experiment with IVF on animal embryos with a focus on genetics. Hey, by the way, the Ford Foundation, you know, like the Ford Company in America, was interested in genetic and reproductive science that would help deal with world overpopulation. That was the sexy scientific concern of the day. And it was certainly one of Robert Edwards' major concerns. Yeah, as we talk about over on this season of World We Made, overpopulation has been a pagan kind of boogeyman for a long time. It's often been the rationale to promote child killing. Just something for our listeners to take note of. Yeah. So at first, Edwards was not really interested in IVF as a way of treating infertility. He would think of it as more applying to infertility later in his career after he met Robert Steptoe, a gynecologist with whom he would do a lot of his groundbreaking sort of research. Yeah, Steptoe and Edwards together would successfully facilitate the birth of Louise Brown, the first IVF baby in 1978, but we'll, we'll get there. Okay, so if Edwards wasn't interested in solving infertility, why was he interested in fertilizing eggs in a test tube? So that he could look for the origin of various genetic diseases like Down syndrome. By the way, in the course of his genetic research, he also laid the groundwork for pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, or PGD, which is a genetic test for embryos that often provides the rationale for throwing away embryos, which is to say, killing children, aborting them at the embryo stage. Right, you test your kid for a genetic disease while he's still an embryo, find out that he has a genetic disease. Or that you think he might have one. Right, because these tests actually aren't perfect. But you find out he has what you think is a genetic disease, and so you abort him. Because it's better to kill him than having to put up with him having some defect, right? Don't you mean it's better to kill him than for him to have to put up with some defect, Nathan? Yeah, that's, that's what I meant. In case it isn't obvious, Edwards wasn't a Christian. For a time, he was interested in religious ideas as they applied to medical ethics, but he explored Christianity when he was young, and then he became opposed to religion. So let's be more specific. He was opposed to the fruitfulness that God built into mankind, and he wanted to control it, and he wanted to limit it. Oh, definitely. I mean, as his work on IVF became more and more public, you know, and as he turned to trying to do it on humans, (laughs) Edwards began to encounter more and more opposition to it. The world of his time was really different than our world. We're used to this stuff. I mean, it shapes our world. But ordinary folks back then were appalled at the idea of taking conception out of the womb and into the laboratory. Here's a quote from an article from NBC News that sums it up. Quote, At the time, Steptoe and Edwards' plan to make a baby using conception outside the human body was the subject of a huge amount of ethical criticism. Some maintained that creating children this way was simply unnatural and would stigmatize the child. Others bemoan the creation of life without sexual intercourse, fearing that in vitro fertilization would degrade human dignity as people became the object of mechanistic creation in glass dishes. The biggest fear was that in vitro fertilization might produce deformed or dead babies. Three decades later, none of those scary predictions have panned out. End quote. Right, yeah, none of those predictions have panned out. None at all. Especially the part about dead babies. Well, not to mention the part about the degradation of human dignity. That's totally untrue. Yeah. Throw out that unfounded fear with the dead babies. Oh, oh, sorry. I meant to say throw out that unfounded fear with the other unfounded fear about the dead babies. 
Something tells me you meant to say the first thing you said, Jake. Yeah, something tells me you're right. Well, back to the opposition that IVF faced at the time. I feel like we need a really particular example of opposition from, oh, I don't know, a famous scientist or something. Hmm. Hmm. How about a quote from James Watson, the geneticist who theorized about the double helix structure of DNA with Francis Crick? That's a pretty big name. According to an article from The Atlantic, Yet again, Watson testified about IVF at a congressional hearing in 1974 and said that if there were a successful embryo transfer, quote, all hell will break loose politically and morally all over the world, end quote. Huh. It makes you wonder if anyone today, I mean, even if this Watson guy himself looks back on the world since IVF became a thing and says, yep, all hell broke loose. I think most people don't, unless they're Roman Catholics. I don't know what Watson would say now. Well, listener... You decide. Did all hell break loose? Was Watson correct? We're going to get to the part where we tell you what we think and you can decide what you think. But we can't emphasize enough how much times have changed, even since the 60s and 70s when this stuff was coming into vogue. There are pundits and even fellow scientists on record at that time as saying babies grown in vitro would be monsters. People weren't looking at this as a wonderful medical breakthrough. They were afraid it was a chapter out of Frankenstein, right? Yeah, there was a sense in the public square that all this stuff just amounted to playing God, which was a correct sense. Now Ben's told us what he thinks. Yep. Now you know, but in the larger scientific community at the time, hey, you might not be surprised to find that playing God was not their main concern. You know, I might not be surprised. What was the main concern among scientists? Uh, The main concern was that IVF amounted to human experimentation. So they were worried for all the embryonic babies? Uh, No, not so much. Scientists were concerned about the women whose eggs would be surgically extracted and into whose wombs these fertilized eggs would then be transferred. This is what came up when the Medical Research Council, which is a government organization in the UK that funds medical research, when they denied Robert Edwards' request for funding in the 70s. By the way, just to keep hammering the overpopulation thing, one of the scientists evaluating Edwards' proposal said, quote, It would be wrong to place a major emphasis on techniques for augmenting fertility in infertile patients when we desperately need methods for limiting fertility in the normal population, end quote. Yeah, I guess we're going to keep hammering this overpopulation thing. Yeah, why not? I mean, today, of course, the alarm bell has begun to ring for depopulation. But that's a horse of a different episode, listener. I just want to say that the overpopulation issue helps explain why genetic testing was so important to Edwards. And it explains why he was a trustee of Britain's Eugenics Society. Oh boy. Hey, sounds like the right rabbit hole to go down for a minute. We're going to stop the Edwards story again? Well, just for a second to connect some dots. All right, connect some dots. Well, okay. So we want to connect the dots of overpopulation, genetic testing, and eugenics. All right, Ben. I exist to connect dots such as those. Okay, everybody. Keep the history of IVF story tab. Open, but open another tab on eugenics. I guess we all know what eugenics is, but why don't you give us a working definition real quick, Ben? Sure. So, okay, founder of eugenics, Francis Galton, said eugenics was a, quote, science of improving stock to give to the more suitable races or strains of blood a better chance of prevailing speedily over the less suitable than they otherwise would have had, unquote. And Francis Galton was Charles Darwin's cousin, by the way. It's a meaningless coincidence of history. Pull up the full title of Origin of Species real quick. Okay. Yeah. Oh, man. (laughs) There we go. (laughs) Okay. It's a meaningless uh, coincidence until you read the full title of Charles Darwin's famous book, which you may know of as The Origin of Species, but it's actually On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or The Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. 
Huh. How about that? How about that? Yep. Pretty meaningless. Yep, meaningless. Yep, meaningless. So basically, eugenics is a discredited science that has nothing to do with Charles Darwin's theories of evolution nope. or anything like that, mm. or the rejection of God or anything. It's a discredited science that sought to purge the human race of unwanted genetics, meaning in the case of the Nazis, the unwanted race of the Jews, along with any disabled or defective people. Meaning in the case of Margaret Sanger, founder of Planned Parenthood, any unwanted, defective, or weaker peoples or races. Okay, so have that idea of eugenics in your mind. The tie to genetic testing should be obvious. Genetic testing exists to give you a heads up about any genetic diseases or abnormalities your child might have. Which sounds fine, I guess. Maybe in and of itself, but... But as soon as you put it in context with eugenics, with the so-called purification of the human race, it becomes really sinister. And even apart from the so-called science of eugenics which it's popular today to condemn because, you know, Hitler. The problem, as we alluded to earlier, is that genetic testing is still used to determine whether or not your child should be allowed to live. For instance, genetic testing was already beginning to be used to abort fetuses with Down syndrome in the early 60s. And that's something we'll come back to in a later episode in the series. Right. So now with PGD, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, these embryos created through in vitro fertilization could be screened and then killed, destroyed, if they were thought to have a genetic abnormality. In 1999, Robert Edwards, as an older man, was commenting on the role of PGD. Pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. Yeah, you're getting it. <laughs> hey, but also, why don't I throw you a curveball, Nathan? It's also called PGT, which stands for pre-implantation genetic testing. So many acronyms, no fair. <laughs> nope. Anyway, Robert Edwards was commenting on PGT, PGD, whatever in a 99 interview with the London Sunday Times, and he said, quote, Soon it will be a sin of parents to have a child that carries the heavy burden of genetic disease. We are entering a world where we have to consider the quality of our children, unquote. Wow, it's almost like eugenics never really died and went away. Mm, that's because it didn't. The Eugenics Society in Britain just renamed itself in the mid-90s to the Galton Institute after the founder of eugenics and... Now it's been renamed again to the Adelphi Genetics Forum, and they have a little blurb at the bottom of their site repudiating the bad, bad things that eugenics stood for. Well, if they're doing that, they must repudiate Edward saying it's a sin of parents to have a child that carries the heavy burden of genetic disease, right? <laughs> you know, it's funny, but I highly doubt they repudiate that. It doesn't matter what they say they repudiate. It's no different than when Planned Parenthood disavowed Margaret Sanger. All this stuff, all this messing with human genetics is fundamentally religious. Whether you call it eugenics or a genetics forum, it's playing God. And they're not going to stop playing God. Right. And it's no accident that Robert Edwards, who played God in the laboratory, was talking about genetic sin. Dealing with sex, children, and the future of the race of mankind is the stuff of religion. So of course, this particular genetic religion has its own version of original sin, which in this case is the sin of genetic deformity. And as with any religion, there's a whole lot of bloodshed involved to deal with that sin. We'll get some more of the bloodshed as we go. But yeah, it wasn't... Weren't you connecting some dots about overpopulation, Nathan? Oh, I love to connect dots. All right, here's some final dot connection. If you're concerned about overpopulation, which eugenics always was, and if you're going to limit births, you want only the most genetically healthy babies to come to term. Why waste your time with deficient children? Or children who aren't male, if you want a boy. 
Or children who aren't female if you want a girl. Jake, Jake, you don't think sex-selective embryo abortion is really a thing in today's modern world, do you? Okay, I was being sarcastic. It's definitely a thing. It's definitely a thing. Guys, we gotta close this tab. We gotta close this tab and reopen the history of IVF tab. Okay, wait, wait. But before we do, what if there's good reason for choosing only the females and not the males? A good reason? Yeah, like Robert Edwards said in a 1971 article he wrote with a lawyer named David Sharp. Uh, I'm sure what he said was very compelling. Oh, it was, Jake. He said, quote, The eugenic reason for sexing is that many genetic dis- disorders are sex-linked, hence they usually occur in males, quote-unquote. Ah, uh, there's a eugenic reason. I hadn't realized that. Thanks for enlightening me. Hey, By the welcome. way, sexing means choosing which lab-created embryo gets a chance to live based on their sex. Yeah. A moment later, Edwards talks about abortion laws, and he notes that, quote, Male fetuses thought to have sex-linked disorders can apparently be legally aborted under British statute, unquote. And then he talks about how destroying a blastocyst... Blastocyst is an embryo stage of development. It's what you call an embryo around the fifth or sixth day. Right. So so Edwards brings up that abortion law to say that destroying a defective blastocyst also is a good and right thing. Because, quote, the opportunity to give the mother a healthy embryo seems fundamentally humane, unquote. Ooh, fundamentally humane. All right. So under the cover of concern for the mother, he wants to kill the children. That's the exact same as the abortion industry. You know, the more we talk about it, the more I just sort of feel like the IVF industry is just another facet of the abortion industry. The message of both comes down to this. This is your world. This is your body. This is your genetic property and you are God. Yeah, create those little embryos until you have what you want. Dispose of the rest. Leave them frozen. Donate them. It's your world. But of course, that is a lie. This is God's world. It's not your world, Robert Edwards. It's not your world, scientists. It's not your world, parents. These children aren't your property to be created or destroyed at your pleasure. Again, we know that some of our listeners have participated in IVF. We know that many, many Christians have participated in IVF and would defend it and would say that we're lumping together issues we ought to judge separately. We will deal with those arguments later. For now, we're just being blunt kind of showing some of our cards at last. Alrighty, can we please now close the eugenics tab? Sure, sure. And uh, let's go back to the history of IVF tab. Open that one up. Ben, weren't we in the middle of the journey towards the first IVF baby? All right, yeah, we were, Nathan. I'll get back to it. We were talking about the way the Medical Research Council denied Robert Edwards' request for funding in the 70s. That's how we got off into overpopulation, eugenics, all that stuff. Right. So I was going to say that of all the scientists who were evaluating Edward's grant proposal at the time for the council, only one of them is recorded as mentioning the embryo as a human being worthy of concern. I'm sure some people were talking about the embryo, though, right? Well, yeah, but not on the council. Religious leaders, especially Catholics, were outspoken against IVF for the embryo's sake. But scientists, by and large, didn't start having that debate at all. You know, is this a human or what? Until the early 80s after the first IVF baby had already been born. Wow, that's awfully decent of the scientists to consider the humanity of the embryo eventually, though. Yeah, all hail the progress of scientific ethics. Speaking of progress, Jake, why don't we progress to the birth of Louise Brown? Oh, Nathan, you're a guard. (laughs) (laughs) The birth of Louise Brown in the UK in 1978 was a huge deal. The very first IVF baby to result in a live birth. Yeah, there was one other pregnancy through IVF in 1975, but it was ectopic. Okay, Louise Brown. Wikipedia tells us, quote, Her parents, John and Leslie Brown, had been trying to conceive naturally for nine years, but Leslie faced complications of blocked fallopian tubes, end quote. 
Leslie's gynecologist was Patrick Steptoe. We mentioned him earlier. He's Robert Edwards' research partner. So this happened through Steptoe and Edwards' work. Hey, hey, very coincidentally, remember that gross history trivia about the first artificial insemination that used donor sperm? About the woman not being informed what was happening, you mean? Yeah, that. But you can't be about to tell me that there was any failure to inform the parents of Louise Brown what was going on because that would be too much of a coincidence. Yeah, it'd almost be like this kind of stuff lends itself to deceit and the cover of darkness. It almost really would. <laughs> well, from what I've read, the Browns knew it was an experimental treatment, or they sort of did. There's some question about that, but they didn't know that IVF had never, ever been, you know, successful. <laughs> what Edwards and Steptoe told them just didn't meet today's standards of uh, informed consent, shall we say. To put it in the words of... An NBC News article that we quoted from earlier, quote, the consent they got was lousy by today's standards. Lousy. Would you imagine that? Lousy would be one word for it. Deceptive would be another. Here's this experimental process that's never resulted in a live birth before. I won't tell you that. I won't give you appropriate context about any of it. Yeah, I don't think they prepared the Browns for how controversial it would be for them either. If the pregnancy was successful, boy, was it controversial. An article from The Atlantic says that, quote, while on bed rest in a public hospital during her pregnancy, Brown had to be moved from her room in response to a bomb threat, later proved a hoax, unquote. A New York Times article says that, quote, once the news got out, public fascination with her case was unrelenting. She was a quiet woman, Dr. McNamee said, and the attention stunned her. After Louise's birth, the Browns went home from the hospital to find reporters camped out on their street. For months, Mrs. Brown could not leave the house without being chased, end quote. And the Browns got a lot of hate mail, too. But to be uh, fair, the way that Steptoe and Edwards dealt with the Browns matched their conduct throughout all the years of their IVF experimentation. For instance, they got oocytes, women's eggs, right, oocytes, and ovarian tissue through a gynecologist working at a U.S. Air Force hospital in Britain. But the women who agreed to give these parts of themselves up for experimentation weren't told what the research was. And who knows what exactly our brave heroes told the women who were the direct subjects of IVF experiments. One article from statnews.com says, quote, Edwards and IVF co-inventor Patrick Steptoe conducted experiments on hundreds of women between 1969 and 1978 in Oldham, England. The Oldham Evening Chronicle is now seeking the stories of 282 women who underwent 495 failed IVF cycles. One former patient, Sandra Crashley, has written that Steptoe removed all of one ovary and half of the other, shocking her body into early menopause and rapid aging, end quote. Wow. Well, maybe there are a lot more stories like that that we don't know about. It sounds like the council that denied funding to Edwards was right to be concerned about the women whose bodies were used to develop IVF. Yeah, and when we start to think about all the embryos who were created during these 495 failed attempts at IVF only to die, we start to get a better picture of the bloodshed involved. But those 495 attempts that those 282 women went through, they don't represent all the embryos created and killed during the years of research. Right, because you mentioned already that Edwards was getting eggs from women who wouldn't otherwise be involved in an IVF treatment. Yeah, so for years he got eggs from that Air Force hospital in Britain and other sources like women whose ovaries had had to be removed, for example. And he was just seeing if he could fertilize these eggs, and he was fertilizing them to see if they could be successfully grown in a petri dish. So he wasn't, like, transferring them to a woman's womb at that time. No. No, he wasn't. 
This was the first part of his proof concept. Can we make embryos in a lab? Next part was putting those embryos in a woman's body so they could implant. And uh, I'm afraid I have to ask. I know where he was getting the female gametes, but where was he getting the male gametes? From himself and his male colleagues. Uh, That's gross. And not only gross, but that means he was killing his own children as he tried to perfect the process of making test tube babies. Yeah, it's incredibly evil to consider. This is a technology achieved through child murder. Yeah, I mean, it really is a dark sci-fi story a la Frankenstein or Dr. Moreau. Mad scientist kills hundreds of his own children in an insane attempt to play God. Maybe that's how we should think of it, but nowadays it's normal and no one bats an eye about it. Except Roman Catholics, maybe. After Louise Brown, it didn't take long for IVF to catch on and spread. About 480 clinics here in the U.S. alone do IVF, and there are thousands of clinics worldwide. Like anything else in this whole thing, we don't have good data on how many there are. Yeah, we also don't have good data on the number of babies born through IVF. Kind of like we don't have good data on the number of babies born through donor insemination, like we established last episode. Yeah, right, exactly. The regulation on these fertility treatments varies from country to country. U.S. is incredibly unregulated, as we said. Some other countries are much better, but for what it's worth. The CDC's 2015 report on ART technology in the States said that Over 1 million babies were born here in the States using that tech between 1987 and 2015. Their 2019 ART report has a bar chart showing the increase over the past several years of births from IVF. From 2010 to 2014, it's in the 60 to 70,000 range. Then it's in the 70 to 80,000 range from 2015 to 2017. And after that, it's in the 80 to 90,000 range. So that's a lot of babies. Yeah, and it's about 1-2% to of all babies in the U.S. How about worldwide? Well, worldwide, there's a 2018 report that estimated over 8 million babies had been born through IVF at that time. 2021 article claims over 9 million. So, this technology has changed the world. So, how much does it cost for a woman to have an IVF procedure here in America? The average cost is over $20,000, which includes several thousand dollars worth of medication. Okay, so not cheap. We said before that the fertility industry is really, really big business, bringing in about $2 billion a year. What about IVF in particular? Oh, I found a report that says the global market size amounts to $24.21 billion in U.S. dollars and is going to grow to fifty, over $50 billion by 2027. Another report valued things lower, estimated less growth, but still, still in the billions and billions. Billions, but it's a ton of money. And and again, that's just art. That's just art. Okay, fellas. Well, we covered a lot of territory on this episode, but we still haven't walked step by step through what happens in the IVF process. And I think we need to do that for the listener to get a complete picture. Yeah, we can do that. And as we do, you're going to see all the places these tiny image bearers die or are put at risk of death. Or you will next week when we pick this up. Wow, what a bummer of a cliffhanger. Yeah, well, this stuff is dense. I guess we could have done a four-hour episode, but we wanted to let it breathe. All right, folks, join us next week for part three. (laughs) 